Uh, Take your Bibles for our scripture reading today. Our scripture reading is from Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. If you need a pew Bible, it's on page 1,156. Galatians chapter 3, 23 through 29. What a great passage in light of all that we have just sung. Verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are filled with joy as your people. For in Christ we are forever free. And it's not anything we have done. It's by your grace, your grace alone, through faith alone in you alone. And so, as we read this passage, Lord, open our hearts. If there are those who are still in bondage, may your spirit and word set them free. If there are those who are struggling under legalism and and, and thinking they must do more and perform better, may they be set free this morning. Father, may us who are in Christ relish the access, the approach, to you and into your holy of holies. Let us acknowledge, Lord, that it's all of you and it's none of us. May we be hearers and doers of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Keep your Bibles open because here at LifeBridge, we want you to see the sermon not just in your notes, but in the scriptures. Now, our sermon is all based around Galatians 3.28 this morning, in the context of the passage that we just read. Galatians 3.28 is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. Look at it again in your Bible. Galatians 3.28. It's simple. It's powerful. It's one of the clearest and strongest verses on unity in all the New Testament. And yet, for all its beauty of unity... It is a battleground for disunity among the church today. You say, why is it a battleground? It's because Galatians 3.28 is a beautiful verse on unity, but also a battleground for disunity in the debate over male and female roles in the church and in the home. Galatians 3.28 is one of the key passages in the debate over male-female roles. Now, as most of you know, and we've mentioned in in past weeks, our leadership council is diligently doing a study of all the key passages on man and woman in Christ, and we've been going through that. And besides 
Genesis 1 through 3, because it begins there, besides the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels, besides the examples of the early church, there are four Pauline texts that are at the center of the debate about man and woman in Christ in the home and church, especially, that is, in the church. And those key passages are Galatians 3.28, 1 Corinthians 11.12-16, 1 Corinthians 14.34-36, and 1 Timothy 2.11-15. But if we just read Galatians 3.28, you might be saying, why is that so controversial when it seems so straightforward? Well, the reason is, There are two basic views, which we have shared with you here recently, regarding men and women in the church, egalitarians and complementarians. And they each handle this verse in two very different ways. The positions are there in your notes or here on the screen. Egalitarians believe this. All believers, without regard to gender, ethnicity, or class, and notice, Those are the three categories right out of Galatians 3.28. All believers, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or class, must exercise their God-given gifts with equal authority and equal responsibility in the church, the home, and the world. Complementarians, on the other hand, believe men and women are equal in value, in dignity, in worth, in humanity and made in the image of God, but have different roles in the home and in the church. And while both are gifted for service in the church, the office and function of pastors are limited to qualified men according to Scripture. Now you might be saying, well, what does this have to do with Galatians 3.28? How did this beautiful verse become a battleground between these two groups? Well, let's look at how egalitarians handle or view Galatians 3.28. They see it as a verse to cancel the other passages about gender roles. Now, I'm talking in broad sweeps here. There's a spectrum of views on this, but I've read enough and, and seen enough, and I can show you that in general, this is how egalitarians handle this verse. It's a verse to cancel other passages about gender roles. In other words... This verse becomes a controlling standard by which everything else Paul writes about gender roles is to be judged, and if it doesn't agree that there is no male and female, then it is canceled. For instance, when Paul teaches later, and I believe, and many scholars do, Galatians was his first epistle, so later in Ephesians, when he writes in Ephesians 5 about loving headship of husbands, and respectful submission of wives voluntarily to their own husbands and to their own husbands this verse cancels that passage later when paul writes to the corinthians in 1 corinthians 11 about an order of headship in creation and in christ that impacts the order of worship of gathered assemblies like ours egalitarians would say this verse cancels that passage Later, when Paul teaches one of his last letters to to his disciple Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, that women are not to lead or teach with authority over the local church, egalitarians would say, this passage cancels that, this verse cancels that passage. In other words, Galatians 3.28 is the round hole 
that the square pegs of these other passages must be forced into. Therefore, if there's any rough edges, any disagreement, shave it off so that it can fit into the round hole of Galatians 3.28. But, but, when egalitarians use this verse by Paul to cancel other passages written by Paul, they're doing something more than canceling Paul. They are canceling the authority, the inerrancy, and the inspiration of Scripture. You see, here's the bottom line. If in Christ, male and female are so equal that there should be no differences in marriage and ministry roles, then whatever Paul writes after this that seems to teach different gender roles leaves us with three basic options. If you're going to say Galatians 3.28 eradicates any gender role differences, then you're left with three options and then a better one. So let's look at these three options and the better one. Option number one is this. Since Paul is writing all of these passages, Paul later contradicts himself. Paul later contradicts himself. He wrote here and he meant there is no male and female differences in any way. They are equal in everything. But later, he contradicts himself. Egalitarians want us to accept that Paul contradicts himself. But this directly undermines Paul's apostolic authority and the inerrancy of Scripture because there is ultimately one author of the Bible, and it is God. And if Paul is contradicting himself, then it is God who is contradicting himself. Well, okay, that sounds... I don't think we want to go that route, so maybe option two. Paul later compromises himself. Paul later compromises himself. Egalitarians would want us to accuse Paul of compromising himself by not practicing what he initially preached. Oh, he didn't contradict himself. No, what happened was he first wrote Galatians, he preached it, and then later, under pressure or due to his own um, uh, chauvinism or due to cultural issues, he then compromised on what he really believed. But again, this directly undermines especially Paul's integrity. So Paul's now a compromiser. But if Paul's a compromiser, then so is God, because God is the one that wrote and inspired both of those passages. Well, contradicting, compromising, these aren't good. Maybe the third option will take care of it. And here it is, option three. Paul must be corrected by this controlling verse. Paul must be corrected by this controlling verse. Egalitarians would want us to actively, and some do it antagonistically, some do it aggressively, some do it arrogantly, not all, but some, they want us to correct what Paul writes elsewhere to conform to what he writes here. Now, since Galatians 3.28, for the egalitarian, is the controlling universal statement regarding male-female roles, then whatever Paul wrote after this is a temporary command in their thinking. It's temporary, it's local, it's situational, it's cultural, 
It's tied to a specific geographic location. They were messed up in Corinth. He was trying to help them. There were false teachers in Ephesus. He was trying to help them. But the reality is all the New Testament letters were written to specific local locations. They were all written to specific situations. And we can't pick and choose because ultimately, again, the one author is God. Here's what egalitarians want us to do with this one single verse. Instead of letting each passage tell us what it means in its own context, we begin, we begin to tell other passages what they must mean by reading this controlling verse into all other passages. You see, ultimately, we sit in judgment on the text. We are telling the Apostle Paul what he can and cannot teach. We are the ones to determine what is universal and what is cultural. How do egalitarians handle Galatians 3.28? It's a verse to cancel other passages about gender roles. And if you take that approach to Scripture, then you have Paul and God himself through the Holy Spirit either compromising, contradicting, or us correcting what Scripture says. But there is a better and a more biblical option, and that is option four. Option four is this. Paul is consistent with himself and the rest of the Bible. Paul is consistent with himself and the rest. We, as a church, acknowledge that Paul is consistent in his apostolic teaching of the inspired Scriptures. So we seek to correlate, not correct, but correlate passages. As we compare Scripture with Scripture, we seek to correctly interpret each passage in its context and then compare it with one another to come to what God is teaching in all these passages. And I would say to you this morning, this is how complementarians view Galatians 3.28. This is how they handle Galatians 3.28. It is a verse that is consistent with other passages. No contradiction, no compromise, no need for us to correct the inspired text. Now, my goal this morning is to help us understand this beautiful verse in its context and to see how it can help us re-engage as a church. Because as we re-engage after this long period of lockdowns and all of this, we want to continue to be a church that's governor, governed by the master of the household. You realize the church is the household of God, and he is the master. And he has a beautiful design for the family of God and for the families that make up the family of God. And we can follow the master's blueprint for his church. So here's what I want to do with the rest of our time. I want to look at three timely truths from Galatians 3.28. Three timely truths. And they are relevant as much to our culture as they were when Paul first penned these to the Galatians. So here's the first truth. Equal access to God brings oneness in Christ. Equal access to God brings oneness in Christ. Now, it's been said, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. In other words, 
take any verse out of its context and you can use it to, to say anything you want it to say. You can make it mean anything you want it to mean. And we will never, never properly understand Galatians 3.28 until we understand how it fits into the context here of the, of the paragraph that we read, but also into the whole argument of the book. So let's begin. What's the big idea of the book of Galatians? Well, there's many ways you could say it, but here's one way. Don't forsake the gospel to get more of God or to get more from God. Don't forsake the gospel thinking that if I have the gospel plus this, I'll get closer to God. If, I'll, if, I, if, if I have the gospel plus this, I'll somehow be more blessed of God. In other words, stop trying to gain greater access to God and His blessings by the works of the flesh versus the gracious work of the Spirit through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul's first letter to the first churches that he planted on his first missionary journey, these were churches that were in a gospel crisis. False teachers had come in. They were called Judaizers because they wanted to bring Christians back under the law in order to really get in on God's blessings to Abraham. And they were coming to these believers who already had access to God's presence. They already enjoyed all of God's blessings. They had the indwelling spirit. They, 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 their sins were forgiven, but more they had been clothed in Christ. But they were saying, you need just one more thing to really get in on the Abrahamic blessings. And that is, you need to come back under the law and you men need to be circumcised. Now, Paul's gospel solution to this crisis, he takes us through the book. In chapters 1 and 2, he first of all says, they're false teachers, let me give you my credentials as a true apostle. They have a false gospel, let me tell you where my gospel came from. It came directly from God through Christ to me. So he establishes his authority as a messenger and his message. Then in chapters 3 and 4, where our verse is found, he rebukes the Galatians for abandoning the gospel and returning back to the works of the flesh and the bondage to sin that comes with that. In other words, he reminds them, and he does this in a forceful but gracious way, he reminds them that if you abandon the gospel, you have nothing to gain and everything to lose. They want you to go to the law to get more, but no, you have nothing to gain that you don't already have in Christ, and you have everything that, to lose that you do have in Christ. And then in chapters 5 and 6, Paul challenges the Galatians to never return to that bondage of the law and of the flesh, but remain free. We just sang, we are forever free. He says, stay in that gospel. Remain in that grace. Don't return to the bondage of performing, doing better, and coming under the law. Instead, continue to trust Christ keep in step with the Spirit, and hold fast to the gospel that ushers in the new creation. So, how does the paragraph that we read this morning fit into that book? How does Galatians 3, 23 through 29 fit? Well, the false teachers, as I have said, 
wanted the Galatian Christians to go back to obeying the Old Testament law in order to really get saved, in order to really be blessed. And let me tell you, folks, be alert. That's still how cults and false teachers try to lure Christians back under the law. If you've ever noticed, most false cults uh, uh, bring you back to the Old Testament and place you under the law. That happens all throughout. And the idea is, yes, Christ is good, and the gospel is good, and you're saved, but if you'll do this or do that or follow us or believe this, you'll get a little bit more of God. But here's the reality. What verses 23 through 29 are saying is that in Christ you are all one in entering God's presence and enjoying His blessings. In Christ there is neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. Why did Paul choose these three categories, these three contrasting relationships? Well, if you picked up the handout when you came in, or you can see it here on the screen, I believe it's because the Old Testament temple barriers to entering and enjoying God's presence. You see, the way the temple was set up, there were courts and there were walls of separation in uh, going towards the Holy of Holies where God's glory dwelt. And so if you look at that, outside of the temple was the outer world that was without God. And then the Gentiles, they could enter in, but they could only go so far as the court of the Gentiles. They were the most far away from God's holy glory presence in the Holy of Holies. Then you had the court of women. Jewish women could proceed closer to, to the glory of God than Gentiles, but they could only go far as the court of women. And then there was the court of Israel, which was for the men of Israel. And they could approach even closer to the glory of God. But, but, even they could not approach the holy place only the male qualified priests could enter into the holy place. But even they could not enter in to the holy of holies if, as freely whenever they wanted to. Only, only the high priest could enter the holy of holies one time a year. This is why I, well, this is why Jewish men in this day would offer this as a morning prayer that some believe even, well, it goes back to the first century. Some believe it even goes back to the time of Paul. And this is what the rabbis would teach, and this is what the Jewish men would pray. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a slave. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. And at that point, the women in the Jewish synagogue, the Jewish congregation, would thank God and say that you have made me according to your will. Now, before you throw any rocks at me, I'm just telling you what the Jewish people were praying, okay? And, uh, and that sounds horribly harsh, to our modern ears, but you have to listen to these things in the context of the historical context. Now, here's the idea, though. The, the idea, and 
believe me, the depravity of all hearts can take a prayer like that and use it in abusive fashions, okay? And we even see that kind of abusive nature in the Gospels among the Pharisees and the Sadducees that are there. But realize this, the focus was on the spiritual privileges that gave Jewish free males greater access. If you look at that that chart, the reality was, I'm thankful because I get to enter in closer to the glories of God's presence. The Jewish men prayed this, I believe, in light of how the law separated people according to ethnicity, Jew, Gentile, status, slave or free, and according to gender, male and female. But stop and think about this. Stop and think about it. For a Jewish male, free male at that time, to find pride in this, understand this, that even he was under the law. And what Paul says in Galatians is, if you're under the law, you're condemned. So no matter how close you're getting, you're not in the holy of holies, and you're still under the law. You're still falling short of the glory of God, and and death, the wages of sin, are going to be the result. But here, here, with the coming of Christ, here's where the gospel comes in. With the coming of Christ, this all changes. In the new covenant of His blood, by the new covenant of His blood, such walls of separation for entering and enjoying God's presence and privileges, they've been broken down. So look at that second chart. Look at that. Look at what Christ has done. He came through and He has broken down. Therefore, now look at that chart and hear what Paul is saying. There is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male and female, since you are all one in Christ, and He has carried you beyond the holy place into the very holy of holies. Amen? That is great stuff. Now let's see, let's see how these three barriers are dealt with in Galatians 25 through 29. So let's see. In Christ, we are one in entering and enjoying God's presence. Why? Because all, all are spiritual seed of Abraham, including Gentiles. And that's good news because I'd say 99% of us here are ethnic Gentiles. We're not Jewish. And so all of us, guess what? You're a spiritual Jew. You have, you are the seed of Abraham. There, there, no Jewish person has an advantage in entering God's presence than a Christian who is the seed of Abraham. Look at verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Ethnicity is no longer a wall of separation. Secondly, all are set free by the Spirit, including slaves. All are set free by the Spirit, including slaves. Look at verse 25. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian or a custodian or a tutor. And what that meant was we're free from being under the obligation to obey the law. 
And because we're no longer under the obligation, we're no longer under the curse because Christ became a curse for us. That's in Galatians 3. Christ did for us what we could not do. He paid the debt we owed but could never pay. But more than that, in Christ, we get the Spirit, the Spirit of freedom that cries out, Abba, Father. And so the Spirit is doing in us what we could never do ourselves. You know, it's interesting that the law is uh, characterized as a tutor because in that culture, the tutor would be over a child before they were an adult age, and that tutor was often a slave or a servant. And the idea is, hey, we've been set free from those kind of categories. We have access to Christ. Third, look at the third point. All are sons of God, including women. All are sons of God, including women. Look at verse 26. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Listen, look, there's more we could explore in this, but look at just those three verses surrounding verse 28. And notice, Christ has come. He is the promised seed of a woman. He is the promised seed of Jewish Abraham. He is the son of David. He is the son of God who took on human flesh and came in the form of a servant, a slave, and became obedient unto God, even unto a cross death. He alone has broken down the barriers of law-keeping. When he died, the veil of the Holy of Holy was rent, and all the courts of, of the Gentiles and of the women and of the Israel, that was all abolished on the cross. You say, how do we know that? Because he rose from the dead, and he is seated on high, and he has given his spirit to indwell us. You see, this means that such a prayer as those Jewish men would pray, such a prayer, such a prayer cannot be prayed any longer by a Christian. Why? Because we all enter in, we all enjoy the privileges of God's glorious presence. He dwells even in us. Now, this is the main truth of this passage. It's both beautiful and it's timely. And as we re-engage as a church, let's celebrate this oneness in Christ. Let's celebrate. This isn't a club. This is a holy assembly that enters in through praise, through prayer, through preaching, through obedient submission, we enter into the glorious presence of God and enjoy that presence, not just when we're gathered, but also when we're scattered. Amen? But there's another timely truth that I want us to see, and it's this. Oneness is not sameness in the church. Oneness is not sameness in the church. Let me just make two observations here, and here they are. First observation is, one, he uses the word one, means unity, not equality in all things. In today's society, we have such an egalitarian mindset that we're awash in. When we see unity, we immediately think equality in all things. But you know what? There's a Greek word for equality, and Paul doesn't use it. God uses the word one because it emphasizes unity in the midst of radical diversity. Hey, folks, 
It's easy to be united when everyone looks like me, talks like me, thinks like me, acts like me, and basically thinks me is a great thing. You know, I can get along with anybody like that. I've tried for years to convince my wife of this. And she's not having it, and she shouldn't have it, because that's not what marriage is. That's not what oneness in marriage is. And that's not what oneness in the church is about. Oneness is a unity in the midst of radical diversity. In fact, this word that Paul did not use, this word for being equal is used of Jesus and God several times. The Jews wanted to uh, stone Jesus because he made himself equal, completely equal with God. Paul says in Philippians 2 that Jesus did not regard equality with God, exact sameness, something to be held on to, but humbled himself and came in the incarnation. The point is there's a word for equality. That's not the word. It's the word for unity. And let me say this. Only in Christ can there be the radical unity that our culture and world is seeking. Only in Christ amidst the diversity. Have you looked at this world? We're hardening. We're separating. We're getting aggressive and boisterous. What's going to bring unity in this? You're never going to make everybody equal in everything. No, it's in Christ that we have this unity. Because number two, second observation, one means oneness, not sameness. It means oneness, not sameness. And let me just think about this. Being one in Christ does not eliminate our ethnicity. Can I get an amen on that? It doesn't eliminate our ethnicity. In Christ, we get to really celebrate our ethnicity because in Christ we're set free to reject that asp- those aspects of our culture that are ungodly and sinful and embrace those aspects of our culture, whatever your cultural background is, embrace those and celebrate those, whether you're Caucasian, African, Russian, Malaysian, Dominican, Mexican, Filipino, we, we have almost all of those ethnicities right here in our church today. And in Christ, we are one, but not the same. In Revelation 5 and 7, one day, all the different tribes and languages and people groups and nations are going to unite around who? God on his throne and Christ, the lamb who was slain, and they're going to give praises to God. It doesn't eliminate our ethnicity. Number two, it doesn't shift our social status. Uh, I hate to say it, but when you get saved, it doesn't necessarily mean that your social status is going to increase, okay? Often it may decrease, but here's the reality. In coming to Christ, the rich don't have to surrender all their wealth, and the poor are not automatically going to become wealthy. The gospel is not a poverty gospel where you must be poor, and it's not a prosperity gospel that promises riches. Instead, it's a gospel that promises the greatest, richest, all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. Now, thirdly, being one in Christ doesn't blur our gender or our roles in the home or the church. It's true that male and female is not the basis of entering and enjoying God's presence. We've established that under point one. 
And both male and female in Christ are believer priests who have access to God and can approach God without any human mediator other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Women don't have to have permission of men to come to God, and and men don't have special privileges before God in coming to Him and enjoying His presence. We are all one in Christ. But the oneness in spiritual standing is not sameness in roles when it comes to leadership in the home and in the church. And there are other passages, and you have these in your notes. There's other passages where Paul uses the word one and emphasizes oneness is not sameness. One of those is in spiritual gifting. In Romans 12, 4 through 5, he says, For just as we have many members, there's diversity, in one body, there's unity, and all members do not have the same function. There you have it. Oneness is not sameness when it comes to spiritual gifting. Well, what about ministry functions? In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul teaches us about his role, his ministry function as an evangelist and a pioneering missionary. And then he tells about Apollos, who was a discipler who came in after. And Paul planted the seed, Apollos watered the seed, and here's what he says. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. Oneness is not sameness in ministry function. And then leadership roles in the home and the church. All these other passages where Paul talks about it shows us that oneness in Galatians 3 is not sameness in leadership roles, whether that be in the home or in the church. But let me take you to one passage in particular that really shows this. And it's not by Paul, it's by Peter. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 3. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 3. And in one verse, Paul brings in, or Peter brings in everything that we've been talking about and shows us that oneness is not sameness. In 1 Peter, beginning in verse 1, look at verse 1. Peter says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So there he's talking about submission, voluntary submission in marriage. Then he dropped down to verse 7. In verse 7, he then addresses husbands. And he says, husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. The idea here, just because there's headship and submission, there is honor and respect because you are equal in dignity, value, and worth. But go on, look at what he says. Live with your wives in an understanding way as with the weaker partner. There's differences, there's gender differences, but notice, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life. There's the unity. There's the where there's no male and female. And yet, there is differing roles. So New Testament theologian Wayne Grudem put it this way. When the Bible says that several things are one, it never joins things that are exactly the same. Rather, it say, says things that are different things that are diverse, share some kind of unity. So what we see, and I hope 
you at least begin to consider the reality, Paul's not contradicting himself. Paul's not compromising himself. We have no need to correct Paul because there is a consistency where oneness is not sameness. Now, we've seen that oneness in Christ, it's a beautiful thing to celebrate. And we've seen that oneness does not mean sameness in the church. But there's one last point I want to end with, and it's this. Oneness makes a difference in our community. Oneness makes a difference. And I want to look at this quote or look at this statement. Egalitarians have misunderstood this verse. They've misused it to cancel other scriptures. And they've misapplied this to say that there is utter, total equality in roles and functions. But I want you to hear me clearly this morning. Complementarians have also missed, missed opportunities to apply it. Listen, Galatians 3.28 is meant to be a blessing and not a battering ram to bludgeon people. We're right, you're wrong, nananana boo-boo. Listen, that's not what doctrine is meant for. Doctrine is meant to give life. Doctrine is to bring joy. And doctrine is to bring unity under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so just saying, hey, that you know, you're wrong is not what we want. So let me give you four, four ways. I believe Galatians 3.28 preserves differences in leadership, but it has profound consequences for the life of the church. Let me give you four of those. First of all, there is no place for boasting in our church. There is no place for, in light of Galatians 3.28, there is no place for boasting. In Christ, there's no room for boasting on the basis of ethnicity. I'm this, you're not. Or social standing, I've got more, look at what you do or gender, I'm male, or I'm female. Because listen, this is on both sides. Or gifting, or leadership position, or anything. Listen, listen. We sang it three times in three choruses. We've read it. Everyone comes to Christ as sinners saved by grace. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. No one's superior. No one is inferior to anyone else. Listen, did you come to Christ from a church background? Well, be thankful, but realize this. You're still a sinner in need of a Savior. Did you come to Christ from a broken home filled with abuse and anger? That's heartbreaking, but rejoice. You have equal access to the Father. You have the same blessings. Listen, There's no place for boasting, for there is neither slave nor free, Jew or Gentile, male and female. New Testament scholar Peter O'Brien said this, In Christ, there is no inferiority of the one sex to the other or one class to another. Men and women of completely diverse origins are gathered together in unity in Christ through a common allegiance to the Lord. There is no difference in spiritual status between them. Amen. Secondly, there's no place for divisions in our church. 
In Christ, there's no room for divisions on the basis of worldly isms. Whether that be racism, sexism, or nationalism, they have no place in the church because we are called out assembly. We are citizens of the one king and his coming kingdom. And that's where our greatest allegiance lies. Listen, beloved, in many places around the country, our churches are being torn apart by what's taking place in the culture. Pastors are quitting. Pastors are being fired. Members are leaving churches to find a church that matches their particular ism. But listen, we are one in Christ, and that's bigger than any personal philosophy. That's bigger than any political view. And listen, I will gladly surrender my social media and many other things before I let any of it drive a wedge between me and any member of this church because our unity is in Christ, amen? And then, thirdly, there's no place for outcasts in our church. Now, please understand what I mean by that. I don't mean if you feel like an outcast, you're not welcome. No, what I mean is no one should be treated as an outcast because they are different or odd or just plain strange. Hey, guess what? Everyone is strange to someone. So, you know, you can turn to your neighbor and say, breaking you the news, you're strange to someone, okay? Or better yet, turn to your neighbor and say this, in case you didn't know, I'm strange. And I need you to love me anyway, okay? So just, just do that now. Hey, in case you didn't know, I'm strange. Now, if it's your, your spouse, you know, they're going to roll their eyes like you're not telling me anything I didn't know. But listen, that's the fact. That's the fact. There's no place for outcasts, okay? And then finally, there's no place for just my people in the church. There's no place for just my people. Just my kind of people. Galatians 3.28 is about unity, but it's also about universality. You know what? The gospel isn't just for my people. It's for all peoples. And we celebrate that in October with our world outreach celebration, but we should celebrate it every Sunday. The church is made up of people from every tribe, people group, nation, and language who will one day soon gather around the throne of God and the, and the, the Lamb who was slain, and I believe in their own heart languages will sing praises unto God. And we're going to be there, and we're going to revel in it if you are in Christ. Now, I want to show you a video. It's a short video. I want to show you a video of what this is going to look like. This is from blogger Tim Challey. Some of you follow him and know of him. These are all people from his church, his local church. This is a picture of the ultimate meaning of Galatians 3.28. So take a look at this. Yes, give God the praise and the glory. I love how even saying amen comes out in different languages. How many of you heard your heart language? How many of you heard? Yes, yes. And it just rings true. Well, listen, we close with this. Let's re-engage with oneness, not sameness. Oneness in Christ neither eliminates diversity, nor does it eliminate differences in roles and responsibilities, but it should make a difference in our community. Let's recommit ourselves. Pray with me, would you? Heavenly Father, we come 
filled with joy today. You have met with us. And we are thankful that gender, ethnicity, social status does not separate us. Rather, it unites us and we can celebrate our diversity while submitting our hearts to your grand design, not only for the church, but for our homes. Lord, there's much we don't understand. There's much that we resist, but we know that when we submit to you, we bring you the greatest glory, and it is for our greatest good, and it is joy. It is for the joy of all peoples. May we recommit and rejoice in this. In Jesus' name, amen.